This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Vegetables and fruits and all that, we may think that these are okay. I would suggest buying these vegetables and fruits from the farmer's market. And this goes back to a theory that uh, if you want to read about it, it's in the Walls Protocol. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Bluestein knows about that. Yeah, so, I love the Walls Protocol. Walls but... Protocol, where um, th- th- this is a neurologist. She treated her own MS and um, like from a wheelchair to no wheelchair. Welcome back to the Bendy Bodies Podcast, bringing you state-of-the-art information to optimize your health. This is co-host Jennifer Milner, a former professional ballet and Broadway dancer who struggled for years with hypermobility-related problems. Now I train dancers to ensure the next generation of hypermobile artists are better equipped to work to their fullest potential. I am Dr. Linda Bluestein, the Hypermobility MD. I started Bendy Bodies to provide accessible information for everyone on the hypermobility spectrum. Combining my medical education and personal experiences enables me to treat and coach patients and clients to optimize their quality of life. This information is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice. Today, we are so excited to chat with my mentor, Dr. Pradeep Chopra. Dr. Chopra is a Harvard-trained anesthesiologist, double board certified in pain management and anesthesiology, director of the Center for Complex Conditions and assistant professor of the Brown Medical School with a special interest in complex chronic pain conditions and their associated co-existing conditions. He serves on the medical advisory board for several chronic pain conditions and is the former chairman of the EDS International Pain Consortium. Dr. Chopra, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to the Bendy Bodies podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure. Finally, we've been wanting to do this for so long. That's what I was about to say. We are so glad that we finally have you all to ourselves. Um, Your brain will be empty by the time we're done because we're going to pick it clean with all of our questions, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But before we get started, Dr. Chopra, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. As Dr. Bluestein just explained, I did my uh, training and my fellowship in pain medicine. And I have been in Rhode Island for about since 2000. So that's 23 years. And uh, I have a special interest in complex conditions. Uh, so EDS being one of them, but I do have an interest in complex conditions. As far as EDS is concerned, when I first came across this condition almost 20 years ago, I was shocked to find that there was really no information about it, other than it being said, oh, it's a rare condition, and that's it. So part of my training has been in surgery, part of my training has been in orthopedics, and then as an anesthesiologist, I've been trained in a lot of the internal medicine and critical care subjects. And then on top of that, I have pain medicine. None of these times in my life did I learn about EDS. And so I took it on myself to better understand um, EDS and come on and sort of bring in an understanding from all of these subjects, uh, the training that I had in the past to put them together and figure out what's going on with these, with people with EDS. And one of the things I do disco- did discover that this is definitely not a rare condition. It is far more common than we thought. It's just rarely diagnosed. People miss it a lot. But in the last 10, 15 years, I have to say that this is more and more physicians are now beginning to quote unquote suspect EDS, which really helps a lot. My work in terms of treating EDS is um, kind of the primary care provider where I, you know, when a patient comes to me with a suspected EDS, an appointment, a typical appointment lasts about five hours. 
That's not counting the hour or two hours I've already spent the night before reviewing medical records and timelines and all that stuff. Uh, and so when a patient comes in, I go through everything, like from head to toe, we go through everything. We come up with a plan. And that's one part of the conundrum of treating EDS. But the, but the issue that I have, the problems that I face are that I can't find specialists who will, will understand what I need, what needs to be done. For example, just to pick up today's topic on abdomen, I really can't find a gastroenterologist who really understands um, the issues that come with EDS. I think I'm, I probably know two of them in the entire United States. And that's where the problem comes in. But again, it's a step. We start talking about it. We start the conversation rolling. And then eventually people will learn and people will pick up on this. And hopefully somebody will start, some gastroenterologist somewhere will listen to this podcast and say, huh, I am going to change my practice and I'm <laughs> going to treat EDS the way they should be treated. <laughs> well, and, and I think that that, your story is unfortunately a common one in that there is no training out there that, that I know of that is, this is going to be a physician specialty on EDS and connective tissue disorders, right? So what we hear over and over again from some of the experts that we talk to is, well, I learned about this thing and I just wanted to dig deeper into it. And I just put together sort of my own education. And maybe within another 10 years that there will be more of a codified education for, for topics like this. Um, but until then, we are extremely grateful that you um, that you decided to dive deep and 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 figure it out and, and learn about it. And and one of the issues that a lot of people with, with EDS have is that there are so many things that can go wrong and there are so many interconnected, so many comorbidities. Um, it's really hard to parse it out and everybody's addressing one little piece of the elephant and nobody's seeing the whole elephant. So we're really grateful that today we're talking about abdominal pain and not just looking at it from an allergist point of view or a, a GI specialist point of view. Um, as we dive into abdominal pain, can you fill us in a little bit just on some basic abdominal anatomy so we know where we're going? Good. Uh, that's, um, that's, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about the anatomy first so people understand. So you've got to think of the abdomen like a bag, okay? And in this bag um, are intestines, organs, blood vessels, nerves, all of that is stuffed into it. In fact, uh, the intestines are about 20 feet long. So you can imagine taking a bag and stuffing in a tube 20 feet long, and then you put in the liver, the kidneys, the spleen, um, the uterus, the bladder, and all that. So it's all in there. And then the, and then all of this, all of these organs have a nerve supply, and um, actually two nerve supplies. And then there is the... <clears throat> There's a blood supply to these. So I'm going to start from the top of this, this long 20 feet long uh, intestine. And it starts with the esophagus, which is the food pipe. Um, it starts at your throat and then it gets into your, crosses the diaphragm, which is the muscle between the chest um, and, the, and the belly. Uh, it ends in a pouch called the stomach. And then from the pouch, uh, it, it curves into a part of the small intestine known as the duodenum. Uh, duodenum means 10 fingers. So you put 10 fingers together and that's how wide the duodenum is, uh, which is to put it, make things easier as part of the small intestine. And then from there, you get into the food, um, our path. Let's imagine that you're traveling down this intestine. We now, from the duodenum, we now enter into the small intestine. And then this is a, we wiggle through the intestine all the way uh, till we reach the large intestine, which is which starts on the right lower pelvic region. Uh, and then that's where our journey climbs, our, our roller coaster climbs up the right side and then travels across our abdomen and goes onto the left side. 
and then we go down this large tube known as the large uh, intestine of the colon um, and then it goes into an s-shaped uh, part of the colon called the sigmoid colon and and then it goes into the rectum and then into the anus and then we're out so this is the this is the intestine and just i'm going to recap it real quickly uh starts with the uh, esophagus which is known as the food pipe goes into the pouch called the stomach then the small intestine then the large intestine and then into the sigmoid colon which is an s-shaped uh part of the large colon and then the rectum uh where and then it goes and then it's out through the anus so besides this we also have our organs the liver which is on the right side it hides under the rib cage we have the spleen which is also um, hides under the rib cage on the left side we have the two kidneys which are in the back um, and then the uterus everybody knows where it is uh, if they don't know then we have a problem but it's in the pelvis and then you have the two ovaries on each side the bladder and of course the bladder has an opening which goes out uh, through the urethra um, now all of this um, has a very rich blood supply because when you eat food uh, that nutrition is critical for the body and so blood has to uh, in, there's a there's a tremendous amount of blood flow to the, all of these organs so as the nutrition so as the nutrients can be transported to the rest of the body uh, to do that um, there are there are two massive pipes in the back of our abdomen uh, remember I told you the abdomen was like a bag mm -hmm. at the back of the bag or the back of the abdomen there are two large pipes uh, one that brings blood to the abdomen that's called the aorta or to be more precise abdominal aorta and then the other pipe uh, which is more on the left side uh, they all they're both parallel to each other but the aorta is on the right side the inferior vena cava is on the left side and that brings blood back to the heart so the basic principle of blood flow in the human body is what what goes in has to come out the same amount has to come out so the aorta is pretty large and it carries a lot of blood uh, same thing with inferior vena cava it has it's pretty large and carries a lot of blood all of this is going to come into play later on and then you have the nerve supply you have the sympathetic nervous supply system then the sympathetic nervous system pretty much goes to the entire uh, to all the intestines and all the organs in the in the abdomen the parasympathetic which is is it's predominantly the vagus nerve it actually goes uh, down these it follows the esophagus to the stomach to the duodenum through the small intestine and then it stops midway in the colon it stops actually in the middle of the uh, transverse colon and that's the parasympathetic the job of the sympathetic is to um, make the intestines move along and just imagine food in the intestine moves along like a toothpaste squeeze 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 and it moves forward um, that's the sympathetic nervous system doing that and the parasympathetic nervous system uh, keeps that under control so this is anatomy 101 in a very brief uh, nutshell the reason I wanted to do that was because as we talk about the different conditions we will be referring to this anatomy again mm -hmm. well I appreciate that and I also have to point out that as you talked through in a very basic two-minute summary the contents of the abdominal cavity we also touched on several different systems we touched on the digestive system we touched on the nervous system with the parasympathetic and the sympathetic nervous system we touched on the urinary system oh, I can't remember what it's called now um but so we've touched on and and we touched on the cardiac system with a uh, blood supply so vascular system so we've got a lot of things going on in what as you said was a very small bag so no wonder it's complicated 
complicated and no wonder it's difficult. Um, so is that part of the reason why abdominal pain is an issue with a lot of EDS people? Is it because there are so many different systems coming together in that small bag? True. I mean, there's a lot of activity going on in there. And, um, you know, there's so many players in this, in the, in the abdomen. On top of that, this is, I just talked to you about the outside of the intestine. We're not even looking mm. to talk to you about what's inside the intestine. And then again, that's a whole different ball game. But, and then on top of that, you're putting in food and a lot depends on the quality of the food that we are eating and the nutrition that we get. There's a lot of controversy about the, the quality of food that we eat and how it affects our uh, system. The nervous system, just, just a little FYI, um, after the brain, the most nerves that you find are in the in the abdomen. So that's a lot of nerves over there. And then you bring in the blood flow and then you bring in the foods uh, or slash chemicals that you bring in. I'll give you a quick example. Color dyes. Uh, color dyes are extremely harmful for us. Red dyes, blue dyes. And it's hard to get away from these dyes because mm -hmm. your medicines are colored. Uh, and I have no idea why you want to color your medicines, but red dyes and blue dyes are extremely harmful. There is actually a proposal in front of Congress right now where they want to remove color dyes from peeps. Hopefully, once that happens, other manufacturers are going to learn something from it. Veterinary medicine, um, there was a class action lawsuit where color dyes were removed. So all veterinary medicines, veterinary medicines do not have any color in them. But just as a quick point, I wanted to show you the intricacies of how little things can affect our entire body, just like something like, like a blue colored drink can affect your entire body. Mm. That's, that's such a great point. And so much of it, as you said, is coming into the abdomen where uh, I did not know that the most nerves you can find are in the abdomen after the brain. That was, that's, that's really interesting. So, so what are some of the causes of abdominal pain in people with symptomatic joint hypermobility? So I had the pleasure of listing them today and I came up with approximately 22 causes. Wow. So you guys are in for a long ride, but no, no, let's, let's hear it because I'm sure there are listeners who are going check, check, check as you go through your 22 items. So this will be great. They will feel validated. I'm sure. So the first thing I want to make clarify is that it's not an anxiety disorder. Mm. Okay. For, for somebody to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, let's say uh, somebody's having nausea and vomiting and doctors are very prone to pointing out as a, as an anxiety disorder. And it's not. The only way you can call it an anxiety disorder is unless you have proven conclusively without a doubt that there is nothing else going on. And 99.9% .9 of the times there is something going on and it's not an anxiety disorder. So with that, um, <clears throat> let's talk about the food pipe, the esophagus, which is um, one of the commonest uh, conditions that affect the esophagus in EDS is um, eosinophilic esophagitis. So eosinophils are allergy cells. Um, they swarm into the esophagus and line it, and it causes an inflammation of the esophagus. So imagine your food pipe getting inflamed. Inflammation is defined as something that causes swelling, pain, redness. That's, um, so it's a painful condition. So your esophagus becomes um, hot and inflamed. So they have difficulty swallowing, obviously. It also seems like your food is getting stuck in there. It's not moving along as well. One of the things to remember, and we'll get to this again and again, is if any part of the intestine gets inflamed, it stops functioning. That's the bottom line. It just stops moving till the inflammation is resolved. So food gets so the so the esophagus is not pushing that food along. Like I said, about 
like in terms of like a toothpaste. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they also, because it's not moving along, they tend to vomit the food out. And of course they have heartburn. Mm -hmm. Now, the, when we, in medicine, eosinophilic esophagitis as, is classified as a separate condition. But when it was first classified into brought into medicine, we didn't know anything about mast cell activation syndrome. You know, mast cell activation syndrome is, is a very young condition. It's only about 10, 12 years old. That's when he first heard about it. And I think that it is very closely related to mast cell activation syndrome. In fact, it might be part of mast cell activation mm. syndrome. Essentially, uh, just to recap again, the, the food pipe uh, gets inflamed. And when it gets inflamed, um, they have patients have difficulty swallowing. It looks like the food is getting stuck. They have vomiting and they have severe heartburn. And that's esophagitis, which might be a part of uh, mast cell activation syndrome. That would make a lot of sense if it is. I have I have a few different dancers with EDS who have been diagnosed with EOE, and that that makes a huge amount of sense. Right. So whenever whenever I come across this diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis, I start suspecting mast cell activation syndrome, and then I start looking for other symptoms of mast cell. Uh, the second thing I want to talk to you about is very common. It's called GERD or acid mm -hmm. reflux. Uh, it's not it's not particular to EDS. Uh, we all have it. And it's very particular to the foods that we eat. But GERD or acid reflux in EDS um, is closely related to mast cell activation syndrome. So uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens is that there are histamine receptors in the stomach. And, this, and the stomach, remember the pouch we talked about, in this pouch, um, it this acid is produced normally, but uh, in, in acid reflux, it's excessive amounts of acid produced. It's so much so that it starts regurgitating itself back up the, the food pipe, the esophagus. Now, mast, cell, mast cells can stimulate histamine receptors. These are the H2 or the histamine mm -hmm. 2 receptors in the stomach, which then increases production of acid in the stomach. And the reason I brought this up was the most common drug prescribed for acid reflux for patients nowadays is our pantoprazole, omeprazole, and all of these drugs. These drugs are not safe for patients with EDS. In fact, they are not safe for anybody. And I'll explain that to you. Omeprazole or pantoprazole and all the, this class of are what are called as PPIs, this class of drugs is only to be taken for 14 days. That's the black box warning on these drugs, not more than 14 days. And it's not surprising. It's, uh, very often I'll see patients and they'll be, they've been on it for years. Mm. Um, why is it a problem? Number one, it decreases acid production, which is fine, but that decreases calcium um, absorption. You need that acid to absorb cal calcium. So these patients become prone to having early onset osteoporosis and osteopenia. The second problem is that if you kill all the acid, then it allows for the bad guys to grow, especially things like yeast, to start uh, proliferating in the small intestine. And that's the two, these are the two reasons, well, these are the two reasons I don't like this group of drugs. Uh, for short-term use, it's fine. You can take it for, and, and the official recommendation is not more than two weeks. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I know sometimes we think we know better than, than what's on the box, or we think, oh, that feels good. Maybe I should just keep taking it. And that's why it's important to have a doctor that follows along with your care and not just someone that you see once and get a prescription and then and then go on your merry way. And I also have to point out, this is a podcast, so people can't see us, but uh, Dr. Bluestein is like nodding vigorously. Oh, it's so much <laughs> what Dr. Because, Chopra is yeah, saying. People are, he, it's, it's not that they're doing the, it on their own, usually. Their doctors are continuing to prescribe mm -hmm. it for years and years and years. So um, yeah, it's, it, it, it is 
hard to get off sometimes, but yeah, that's one of the first things that I do is talk to somebody about, let's look at other options. And and yes, you're right. If, if people are just listening and not watching the video later or something, they don't, they don't see the, oh yes. <laughs> She's like cheering. Let you know, Chopra is speaking. We'll announce when you're nodding your head. <laughs> so when I got into practice and I was like, okay, I know um, this group of drugs should not be written for more than 14 days. And I had patients coming in who had been on it for years mm -hmm. and I was horrified. So I said, maybe I'm mistaken. So I went back and I looked it up and sure enough, there is a black box warning not to be taken for more than 14 days. So with this, we move on to, we're now in the stomach, right? So we're producing a lot of acid. Um, and I said, one of the reasons we do, we can be producing more acid is because of mast cell activation syndrome. Mm -hmm. Mast cells, these annoying little fellows can, can stimulate histamine two receptors, which increases acid production in the stomach. The other reason we produce acid, excessive acid in the stomach is if you're eating something that you're intolerant to. Like, for example, I'll give you my example. I'm intolerant to gluten. And if I take something with gluten in it, I'll be, I, I start having acid reflux. Um, and so that's, that's so this acid reflux can be caused by foods or it could be caused by mast cell activation syndrome. Hmm. And we, at some point when we ever talk about mast cell activation syndrome, uh, treatments. One of the treatments for that is to use an H2 antagonist to stop these H2 block these H2 receptors. And right now we only have two drugs on in the market. One is called famotidine, sold as Pepsid, and the other one is Tagamet, um, also sold as well Cimetidine, sold as Tagamet. Um, these are H2 receptor blockers, which means that if you can block your histamine two receptors in the stomach, you can decrease acid production without having the harmful effects of the PPIs. So as we move, as as we travel down the stomach, uh, we're now we're now at the exit of the stomach, and we're entering into the into the part of the small intestine called the duodenum. Mm -hmm. Over here, there is a gate. It's 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 a gate. It's a sphincter, and this sphincter is called the pyloric sphincter. And very often, um, the pyloric sphincter goes into a spasm. And the reason for that, which means that if it goes into a spasm, the gate shuts. When the gate shuts, now your food that's sitting in your pouch in the stomach can't move along into the duodenum. It's sitting there. So your small intestine is empty and your stomach is bloated. And the pyloric sphincter goes into a spasm for, for one reason. And the reason is that the, there is a separate nerve supply to the pyloric sphincter. So there are separate sympathetic nerves that go to the pyloric sphincter. And it, it has, and also there is the parasympathetic, the vagus nerve that mm -hmm. goes to the pyloric sphincter. In patients with POTS, the sympathetic nervous system is hyperactive. And so what happens is that the pyloric sphincter shuts down because the sympathetic nervous system is overactive and the vagus nerve by itself can't open it. So obviously treating the, treating POTS makes sense over here, but sometimes you'll need, we do need to, in, in extreme cases, uh, doctors or gastroenterologists will go in there and loosen up the muscle, the pyloric sphincter with Botox injections to allow, allow food to pass easily. Mm -hmm. These patients are going to present with um, abdominal distension, nausea, vomiting, because there's food sitting in the stomach forever. That's so interesting because we've, this is like our, what, fourth, fifth issue that you've talked about. And we've moved from sort of a mast cell dominance of the issues into a nervous system um, trigger for, for issues. That it, and so we're seeing the 
the lap overlap of the different systems. Sorry, go ahead. So the next one I want to talk to you about was so we're still we're now in the duodenum, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're traveling. If you travel down the the food pipe, the esophagus, we've come into the stomach pouch, uh, where we were uh, flooded with acid. Now we are we've gone through the pyloric sphincter, uh, and now we've entered the duodenum. Here we have a slightly different problem. We have what is called superior mesenteric artery syndrome. I'll repeat that: superior mesenteric artery syndrome, or SMAS. In superior mesenteric artery, there's an artery that, um, so the duodenum is a pipe, right? Mm -hmm. And there's an artery that goes, that kind of comes out from the aorta. Remember the aorta was a big um, pipe that supplies blood to the intestine. One of the pipes that come out from it to supply blood to the intestines is called the superior mesenteric artery. And this superior mesenteric artery um, snakes over the duodenum. And in some cases, uh, what happens is the superior mesenteric artery blocks it. It's so tight that it blocks the it, it causes causes an obstruction of the duodenum. Mm. So now you have food that comes down the esophagus, stomach, goes into the duodenum, and now it can't go any further because there's an artery outside it that's that's blocking it. And this is called superior mesenteric artery syndrome. It's far more common than than you that than people think. So you'll have, because we don't have the advantage of pictures, um, so I'm just going to give you a picture about it. Think of a big pipe, and there's a little pipe over it, which which is so tight that it obstructs the big pipe, mm -hmm. the big pipe being the duodenum, the small pipe being the superior mesenteric artery. Mm -hmm. This is called superior mesenteric artery syndrome. These patients will, again, present with same symptoms of obstruction. They get they, they get full very quickly. They get nauseous because food has been sitting there and now it's starting to ferment. They have severe, and they have vomiting, but they also have severe stabbing pain after eating because this food is not moving forward and it's distending the duodenum. And it's just, the stomach has room to distend, but the mm -hmm. duodenum does not have room to distend. And so if you're trying to distend, the duodenum is going to hurt a lot. Um, they do have belly um, bloating, uh, lots of burping. That's gas being pushed back up through your windpipe. One of the things uh, you can they may notice is that if they lie on their stomach, the pain gets better. Mm. Now that's just the mechanics of how it happens. Um, you're moving the the artery away from the duodenum. You're moving the artery away when you lie on your stomach. It it hangs away from the duodenum and allows the duodenum to open up. Mm. So that's superior mesenteric artery syndrome. Well, and I will say I encountered that probably eight years ago with a dancer that um, it took about two years for her to get diagnosed with that. As a dancer, she lost a lot of weight. People thought she had an eating disorder and her family really had to fight um, to say she does not have an eating disorder. She's not lying. There's something wrong with my child. Um, and her mother had a history of some autoimmune and connective tissue problems. And they finally, after a severe um, severe loss of weight that, that put her into the emergency room, um, they finally found the SMAS and it was a game changer for her. So much of it is just not knowing what it is and how to treat it and how to deal with it for, for people. And so you feel like you're completely stuck in this weird world where you're trying to tell people what's going on. And people are like, I don't know, but I don't think that's possible. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And so it's, but I'm not, I'm not talking about something that's very, very rare. I'm talking about something that's very, very common actually mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in the EDS population. So the question is, 
why do people have SMA syndrome and all this? And then there are a bunch of things that we'll talk later on. Mm -hmm. Why do people with EDS have it and people with non-EDS patients do not have these things? Is because, and this is just my thought, is that the tissue, the connective tissue that, that builds up people with EDS is soft. So mm -hmm. when they are upright, there's a small, it, the tissue is so soft that it descends. And it descends, mm. it just has to descend a little bit and enough to cause obstruction in many, many, many different places. And we'll talk about that. Um, a small movement of the of the blood vessel downwards will cause obstruction of the of the duodenum. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Now, over here, I have to uh, talk a little bit about the treatment. If you look at the textbook, the treatment is to eat more, which to me is really funny. Mm -hmm. You have a person now who's bloated, can't eat. Right. has severe nausea, vomiting, belly pain, and you're asking them to eat more. Uh, and it never, I, it never works, obviously. But the treatment that does work very well is what's called a gastroduodenostomy. So they take the stomach and they take the last part of the duodenum, which is loose, and they um, form a short circuit between the two. It's a simple, straightforward surgery. Now the food doesn't have to go through the pyloric sphincter into the duodenum. It goes straight from the stomach into the last part of the duodenum and into the small intestine. And this is a surgery that has been done for decades uh, for different conditions. It's not mm. an unusual surgery. It's not a weird surgery. Um, but that's uh, the that's the treatment for it, not eating more. Um, I did come across some strange literature about called derotation of the duodenum. I won't even elaborate on it. Just forget it. Don't, don't <laughs> someone offers you that surgery, don't, don't even think about it. There's no good literature to support it. The next thing I want to talk to you about was how mast cell activation syndrome affects the abdomen. And essentially, you look at you should have you have to think of mast cell activation syndrome as something that causes inflammation everywhere, everywhere, from head to toe, every every single muscle, ligament, bone, not bone, but all of the joints, all of these are affected. And that's the easiest way to figure. Easiest way to figure out whether you have mast cell activation syndrome or not is it feels like you have flu-like symptoms. Mm. Everything hurts. Everything, you feel tired. You just want to stay in bed, curled up, like as if you're coming down with flu-like symptoms. Now, mast cells are supposed to be, are like the National Guard. They are supposed to defend. Um, they, they're supposed to defend our body. And what they do is they stay on the edge of uh, where there is air or the environment and and the body. So like in the intestine, for example, they are they line the they're on the inner lining of the intestine. Mm -hmm. They're on the inner line, they're on the throat. You can see them in the throat. Um, because um, dry eyes, the muscles accumulate there. They accumulate in sinuses where there is a connection between the environment and the body. So it causes inflammation of the of the of the intestine everywhere. The small intestine is inflamed, the stomach is inflamed, the large intestine is inflamed. And, and like I told you before, when the intestine gets inflamed, it stops moving. Well, that, that makes sense. That's where your gastroparesis can come in from. Mm -hmm. Your small intestine dysfunction can come from because everything hurts. It's very, it's obviously the diagnosis is to look into the symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome. But as a physician, when I examine these patients, I gently push on their stomach very, very gently, and they'll tell you it hurts. I even do what is called a percussion, which is tap um, on their abdomen, and that hurts because their intestines are so inflamed. Mm. And that just tells me that these, and, 
that these that a large part of their bloating and pain in their abdomen is coming from mast cell activation syndrome. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I have interstitial cystitis as the next one, but we'll go on that. So this okay. is inflammation of the bladder. So oftentimes, like I told you, mast cells tend to accumulate at the edges, or the border of the of the environment and the and the tissue. So again, the bladder is uh, the lining of the bladder gets inflamed, and oftentimes these people will have bladder pain, uh, commonly diagnosed as interstitial cystitis which is fine, I don't mind, because you can say bladder pain, you can say interstitial cystitis, but the cause is oftentimes mast cell activation syndrome. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's easy to diagnose, you press on the bladder and it hurts. With the same, in the same sentence, you can talk about inflammation of the urethra. And so people with mast cell activation syndrome, if their bladder is inflamed, their urethra is inflamed, they'll pee and it hurts, not because of an infection, but it hurts because the urethra and the bladder are inflamed. You, they get a test done, they look for infection, they can't find an organism. And they keep repeating, they repeatedly keep having this uh, burning urine and burning bladder. They keep taking antibiotics empirically and they're not getting better. And so whenever I have a patient saying that to me in my office, I ask them like, did your doctor actually look for an organism that's causing this so-called infection? And most times they'll say, no, they just give me some antibiotics. And right. Right. But the treatment lies in treating mast cell activation syndrome. That's mm -hmm. the key here. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and it sounds like a fair amount of physicians may be treating the what? Like your stomach's not emptying, let's empty your stomach. Your bladder hurts, let's assume it's infected, rather than treating the why. Why does your bladder hurt? Why is this happening in your intestines? Why is that fair to say? Yes. And so in the the one the only one, there's only one principle in medicine, in pain medicine actually, is to figure out what's broken. So this is the only question I have in my head when I see a patient. What's wrong here? Why? What's the reason for this patient to vomit? What's the reason for this patient to have knee pain? What's the reason for this patient to have burning in their bladder and their urine again and again and again? So the question is, what's broken? That's the question we need to answer. Yes, you may have um, vomiting again and again, but giving Zofran is not the answer. Mm -hmm. That's the band-aid. Yes, you can, that's a temporary treatment. But what is the reason the person is vomiting is the key thing, key one to find out. Mm -hmm. And just within the last 20 minutes, we must have talked about at least seven reasons for a person, uh, for a patient to have nausea, vomiting, um, and bloating. Yeah. And this is the thing. There are so many reasons. And that's where we as physicians and gastroenterologists and treating physicians have to tease out what's the what's broken here that we need to treat. Mm -hmm. Well, and if you listed seven things, I think six of them came back to mast cells. So that's, right. and that's not where a lot of people start to look when they're trying to deal with right. abdominal pain. Right. So the next one I want to talk about is SIBO, S-I-B-O, which stands for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. What happens is the small intestine, intestine has a thousand different types of bacteria that live there. These are friendly guys. They live there. They help us. The large intestine has 10,000 different types of bacteria. And we know that the intestines move from the small intestine and onto the large intestine and out. We know that that's the path that they follow. But if for any reason, the intestines stop moving, for whatever reason, this mast cell activation syndrome or whatever reason they stop moving or they slow down, then these 10,000 bacteria in the large intestine now creep over to the small intestine and they overpopulate it. And that's what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
the mm -hmm. key word being here overgrowth now <clears throat> most often people treat it as like oh you've got lots of you've got small the test for SIBO is a breath test so they take these a thousand different samples of you breathing into tubes and then they look at methane and other gases that are in there and from that they can predict if you have SIBO or not and if they do have SIBO the common treatment is to give you something an antibiotic that does not get absorbed so a drug antibiotic like rifaximine or neomycin or something like that it doesn't get absorbed it just goes in there like Drano kills all this overgrowth of bacteria and and then it's ejected out through the anus but that's not the treatment the treatment is why did this person get SIBO in the first place because the intestines are not moving well mm. and if they're not moving well we need to fix that first before we give these people heavy duty antibiotics to clean out the small the, the small intestine and very often people are going will develop SIBO they get this Drano treatment and then three months later they are back with SIBO again and that's the reason because we haven't treated the cause of the SIBO. SIBO itself is not the problem. The problem is to find out what the cause is. But people with SIBO generally present with bloating. They feel gassy, um, nauseous, the usual abdominal symptoms. Moving on to MALS, median mm -hmm. arcuate ligament syndrome. Again, I'll repeat that, median arcuate ligament syndrome. It is commonly also known as the Dunbar syndrome which I think is a better name, Dunbar syndrome. But in any case, um, MALS or the Dunbar syndrome is an extremely painful condition. <clears throat> it's a little, I'm trying, I'm gonna try and explain it, but essentially what happens is, remember the aorta we had talked about, the large pipe that supplies mm -hmm. to the intestine. Yes. There is one little artery that comes out from it to provide blood to the stomach and the small intestine area. And that little artery is called celiac artery. And what happens is, the celiac artery makes a burrows under a under the diaphragm, which is the muscle that separates the abdomen from the stomach. That burrows through it, forming a ligament around it called the median arcuate ligament, and then it comes out from the aorta, and then it supplies blood to the intestine. Also, there is a bunch of nerves, uh, part of the sympathetic nervous system, that travel along with the celiac artery, and they also come out through this and they provide uh, innervation to the small intestine and the stomach. Remember, I just mentioned that. So you, we see MALS in, in patients with EDS quite often. And again, I, I haven't seen a MALS patient in a non-EDS patient, and the question is why? Mm. And this is, again, my theory is that people with EDS have soft connective tissue where they stand upright, the, the diaphragm and the tissue and everything kind of drops down settles down and when it settles down it compresses the artery over here the celiac artery the celiac artery gets compressed in median arcuate ligament syndrome so when they eat food as soon as they eat food they feel this intense pain at the top of their um, belly which is called the epigastric region um, or the solar plexus region um, they feel this intense pain there as soon as they eat um, it gets better when they lie on their side especially on their left side or when they lie on their stomach. It gets worse when they're upright. Makes sense, right? If they mm -hmm. lie down, it gets better because now your tissue is going back to where it's supposed to be. It gets worse when they're upright. Now your tissue is, is dropping down and choking the celiac artery. It also um, gets worse as you exercise because as you exercise, there's more blood flow, and but you're upright. And as you're upright, you're exercising. And because the celiac artery is being pinched, 
it can't afford to supply enough blood so you get this pain from it um one of the other problems with this is that uh there's a, there's a nervous system the celiac plexus it's called the celiac plexus is part of the sympathetic nervous system that travels along with the celiac artery and that gets pinched also so this is a pain caused by poor blood flow or ischemic blood flow or ischemia and compression of the of the nerves it's a very painful condition for physicians it's the clinical exam is not that difficult of course you got to take the history but the clinical exam is if you press on the solar plexus or the epigastric region patients are going to wince and they'll complain of a very different kind of pain it's a very sharp stabbing pain and i do that i'll say look i'm going to call this point number one i'm going to press on it and tell me how much that hurts and they'll say uh, they'll they'll make a face and they'll say that's a really sharp stabbing pain to make sure that we're not confusing it i'll i'll take a random spot on the abdomen and press as hard and i'll say that's point number two now which one do you think hurts more and they'll always come back to point number one hmm. you can have them lie on their stomach and they feel the relief right away you can have them lie on their left side mostly or the even the right side they'll get relief from from the pain so the treatment here is, of course, you loosen up the ligament that's pinching the artery and the nerve. Mm -hmm. And there are two schools of thought over here. There are some, some surgeons, uh, these are vascular surgeons, prefer to just loosen up the ligament and let it be there. Uh, there's another school of thought is to not just loosen up the ligament, but also to remove the nerves. And it's the second group of surgeons who get the best results. That's my experience they get better, much better results from the, than the first group. And I've had patients from both groups. And invariably, the first group, you'll always find that they had this mal surgery, and they'll come back and say, it didn't help. You ask them, like, who did it? And then you find out, you look at the operative note, and yeah, they did not remove the nerve. So why is it important to remove the nerve? We know it's getting pinched. So you've released the ligament. And so why is it important to remove the nerve is because some of these nerves don't they actually come through the diaphragm. They make their own opening through the diaphragm. They may they don't always come through the arch of the ligament. They don't always travel with the artery. They, they find their own path through, through the diaphragm. So even if you loosen up the ligament, the nerve that is passing through the diaphragm is going to get pinched every time they stand mm. up. Mm. That makes sense. So it's important to remove. And surgeons who do this surgery will actually do what is called a celiac plexus block. So they'll They'll go in there with a needle, uh, numb up that celiac plexus, and the patient will, uh, in an ideal case, the patient will respond, will say that they have very good results, they don't feel the pain, and then the pain comes back after a few hours when the numbing medicine wears off. <clears throat> so the Thank caution you. here is, uh, besides being diagnosed and all, um, the caution here is to look for a surgeon that removes the nerve as well as loosening up the ligament. That's the important part. So that's median arcuit ligament syndrome, or also known as a Dunbar syndrome. Uh, it's not as rare as people like to mention it. It's pretty common, hmm. very common. Um, the next one is called the nutcracker syndrome. <laughs> okay. The nutcracker syndrome um, is very difficult to diagnose. And I'm going to try and explain what happens. Um, so you have the left kidney and you have the right kidney. The left kidney is a little further away from the aorta. Remember I told you the abdominal mm -hmm. aorta was on the right side? So the blood flow to the, to the left kidney, the artery, that, the renal artery that goes to the left kidney is a little longer than the right one. 
Similarly, the vein that comes from the kidney is also longer than the right one. And you remember the superior mesenteric artery we had talked about? Yes. The superior mesenteric artery uh, is a troublemaker again over here. It travels over the left renal vein. And again, when you stand up, the superior mesenteric artery kind of drops down a little bit and it and it pinches the left renal vein. Now, okay. in the human body, one of the rules is what goes in has to come out. The amount of blood that goes to an organ, that's the amount of blood that has to come out. You can't have two ounces of blood going to the left kidney and only one ounce coming out. That You cannot have that happen. And so what happens is the left renal vein gets compressed by the superior mesenteric artery. The problem here is that they have a wonderful right kidney, but they have a iffy left kidney, and it's very difficult to diagnose it. These patients may present with hematuria, that is blood in the urine. Now, sometimes it's not very obvious, like you're not going to obviously see blood in the urine. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be microscopic hematuria. The way to diagnose microscopic hematuria at home is you pee on a, on a Kleenex, on a white piece of like Kleenex or toilet paper, and you can see redness remaining there, the red blood cells. That's microscopic hematuria. Uh, there is left flank pain. Um, in males, they'll have there'll be a varicocele. Uh, they'll, they'll, th their urine has, in, in, in both men and women, there's increased protein in their urine, and, and there's, they also have anemia. Mm. These are very non-specific presentations, and that's why it's very difficult to diagnose this. My, 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 my piece of advice is that if you have a patient with superior mesenteric artery syndrome, just check these patients for nutcracker also because mm. it's the same artery that's causing problems down the line. Mm. Superior mesenteric artery syndrome is above and the, and the nutcracker syndrome is below. So it's the same culprit. So it's best to check both at the same time. Well, it makes sense now that you've told me that, but um, I, <laughs> I think so many people out there just wouldn't connect the dots of the things that you've said, like anemia and blood in the urine. And, you know, like I can't imagine trying to wade through all of the possibilities that it could be. So um, I know people are taking notes copiously as you're speaking here. You know, when I looked at these conditions, I'm like, okay, you have the SMA syndrome caused by the superior mesenteric artery. And then you have the nutcracker syndrome, which is again, the superior mesenteric artery. Why is this happening? And it brings you back to the same theory that yes, the tissue is loose. And when you stand upright, some of this descends. Now, when I say descend, obviously I don't mean by descends by feet. I'm right. just, just a small just descent. Just a bit, yeah. And that's enough to compress arteries and veins everywhere. So the other one, um, which which is not a big deal problem, by the way, the treatment for nutcracker syndrome is uh, taking the left kidney and transplanting it to the right side. That's the best treatment. Hmm. But anyway, the next one I want to talk to you about is proptosis, which is um, the liver descending down or the kidney falling down, um, up the spleen falling down because it's loose connective tissue. Uh, it's very difficult to diagnose it, um, but what happens is that let's say um, let's say let's, let's say this kid, the kidney falls down, it drops down because the tissue is loose, mm -hmm. it drops down. When it drops down, then the blood flow to it may get compromised. And that's the problem with proptosis. It's extremely difficult to diagnose this condition because it doesn't really show up in any, unless you're specifically looking for it. Um, if you do an MRI or CAT scan or something, it might show up. But otherwise, it's, you, it's clinically, it's very difficult to diagnose it. Mm. When your kidney should be living up 
in the back where your bra strap is, and now your kidney is sitting down in your pelvis, it is, it's very difficult to make that out clinically. Hmm. Well, and I would, I wonder, is it an issue if you're, if, like you said, if you're doing an MRI or something, since you're lying down, does the kidney sort of slide back enough that they don't exactly. really notice it in the, in the MRI? <laughs> exactly. That is why MRIs and CAT scans in ADS are not very helpful unless you do a dynamic CAT scan. Mm -hmm. So you take one when you're lying down and you take another one when you're standing or something like that. Mm -hmm. Static MRIs and static pictures in, a, in ADS are not helpful. Yep. That is yep. a very good point. Pelvic vein congestion. So the pel in the pelvis, you have a ton of veins, especially with, with women, there's lots of veins. And again, um, as you recall, um, you know, when we stand, uh, blood pools down our legs. And when blood pools down our legs, um, especially in people with EDS, their feet turn dark and red. Uh, <clears throat> on the same principle, when they stand, the veins in the in the pelvis get congested. I just, this is the point I wanted to bring was because patients will complain that when the, the pain in the pelvis gets worse when they stand, gets better when they lie down. Mm -hmm. And obviously when you do a, when you do any kind of a study, uh, an, a radiological study, you're lying down and it won't show up. So you got to get it done lying down as well as upright. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing I wanted to bring was POTS. So we know POTS is, people with EDS have POTS for three different reasons. And that hopefully will be a different podcast. But POTS, um, in the, just to take the basic reason for POTS where blood pulls down the legs and you know your sympathetic nervous system is trying to pump this blood back up to your brain, 80% of the blood that pulls down is in the pelvis, the buttocks, and the thighs, 80%. Hmm. So wearing uh, stockings, uh, compression stockings, is not helpful at all. What we need is compression into our, in our thighs, in our buttocks, and even the pelvis, like a like some sort of a compressive corset or something like that, or a tight mm. swimsuit, something like that, that'll compress the pelvic veins because 80% of the blood pools in that section, the mid, the lower section, like the, the buttocks, the thighs, and the pelvis. There's no point in compressing 20%. That's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, endometriosis. Um, I won't dwell on this too much because uh, endometriosis is something that's that's seen in uh, women. Uh, we don't know if it's more common in EDS or not. We have no idea. But I just wanted to bring it up because it's something to think about when you have pain in the pelvic region. Oftentimes, uh, the pain in the pelvis gets worse during uh, periods, um, and it gets better. May not go away when you when you don't have your periods. Uh, but again, pelvic vein congestion will get worse when you have your periods also. So that's one of the things. The only way you can diagnose endometriosis is to peek in there and have a look. So you do mm -hmm. a diagnostic laparoscopic, lap laparoscopy and you look in there and you find endometriosis. If it's not much, they can remove it and uh, take it out. But on the same vein, women with EDS should stop their menstrual periods completely. Whichever way method they use, because what happens is during during the cycle, everything loosens up. Their POTS gets worse, their mastol gets worse, their EDS gets worse, their ligaments loosen up. And then when the, when the cycle is over, everything starts to tighten up again. But by the time it does that, the second round has come on. So it's best to completely stop the periods. And people do well with that. Mm. Interesting. I hadn't heard that. Pelvic floor spasm. So now if you look at the pelvic pelvis, um, there is... 
there is an opening on the top and there's an opening in the bottom. The opening on the top is where all your intestines and everything uh, drop into the pelvis. But at the bottom, there is a floor. There is a muscle layer um, and that is called the pelvic floor. And oftentimes the pelvic floor goes into a spasm. And one of the reasons, there are other reasons. So like endometriosis can cause pelvic floor spasms. But another reason is sacroiliac joint dysfunction, SI joint dysfunction. So the think of the pelvis as the ring, which is a ring that is connected with three bones. And sometimes the pelvis kind of shifts a little bit. When it shifts, it pulls on the, on the pelvic floor. Hmm. Now, obstetricians and gynecologists may diagnose somebody with pelvic floor, but they are not looking at the SI joint. The SI joint can go off for many reasons, starting from having loose ankles to loose knees to loose hips. It may sound funny that a treatment for pelvic floor spasm may, may include stabilizing your ankles, because then that stabilizes your knees, which then stabilizes your pelvis, which mm -hmm. helps with the pelvic floor spasm. That, I mean, um, it sounds funny, but it, but it makes a lot of sense when you put it that called, way and you're looking all the way up and down the chain. Yep. That's, and that's called connecting the dots. Mm -hmm. So EDS, you have to look at EDS as a jigsaw puzzle and each piece of the puzzle has four, four sides and all four sides have to match up. And there are, these four sides could be completely different. So you're talking about, we're talking about back pain and pelvic floor spasms, and we're talking about ankle instability in the same sentence. This is how far these things are connected. The other one is, so, so there's a condition that the gastroenterologists have come up with called rectal evacuatory dysfunction. And for the life of me, I have not been able to find out the definition. What do you mean by rectal evacuatory dysfunction? And my conclusion is that it means it's a fancy word that you can't poop well. <laughs> <laughs> I can't come up with a reason. But the reason I brought this up is that you remember we talked about the small intestine, then becoming mm -hmm. going into the large intestine, and then eventually going on the left side, descending down, and then it kind of becomes curvy, which mm -hmm. is called the sigmoid colon. The sigmoid colon actually hangs off the back of the pelvis. It is flapping around. And in people with EDS, sometimes what happens is when the, when the sigmoid colon becomes loaded, when it's full of poop, it it's it sort of drops to one side because it's become heavy mm. and then it becomes kinked and when it becomes kinked they they can feel the urge to pass stool but they can't and oftentimes when you ask kids kids have this figured out when you ask kids they'll tell you uh do you have to shift positions when you when you do, do poop and they'll tell you yes what i do is i sit on my right side and then i sit on my left side and i can do it uh, i can pass my stool <laughs> That's because they're shifting. They've figured out that you can shift the sigmoid colon to one side, flip it over, and then pass two. Hmm. And that's where the squatty potty came into uh, into being, was that it sort of anatomically is correct way of passing stool. You squat, uh, you 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 pass off sort of have a bowel movement while squatting. The next one, by the way, we are on the eighteenth eighteenth uh, condition, is the May Turner syndrome. Okay, so the May Turner syndrome is let me start with the symptoms. It's left leg pain. Okay, these people have left leg pain. They are, tend to have deep vein thrombosis on the left leg. Mm. And they can have pain in their pelvis also. But it's mostly the left leg that is affected. In Maytherner syndrome, the vein that goes down the leg called the iliac vein, the left iliac vein, gets compressed by the right iliac artery. 
it took me a while to remember who's compressing who, but I, I now have it ingrained into my brain. Dr. Blustein is probably wondering, what did you say? Just say left iliac vein gets compressed by the right iliac artery, but affects the left leg. So that's how it is. Uh, because the vein is getting compressed, uh, blood starts to pool down. And you don't want blood to you don't want blood to be at a standstill anywhere in the body. When blood starts stops to move, it forms clots. Hmm. And so these patients are at risk for developing deep vein thrombosis. So these patients often have left leg pain, left leg swelling, and left leg deep vein thrombosis. But a lot of these patients are asymptomatic, and that's the scary part. They have no symptoms. Actually, I, right now I have a 19-year-old girl, and she has a very clear Mayturner syndrome, but no surgeon wants to touch it because their argument is that there's no problem going on here. This Why should we fix it? But my worry is that one day she might develop a deep vein thrombosis. Mm -hmm. And then you're in trouble. Right. So because these conditions are not so well studied, we don't really have very good protocols in place. And surgeons don't want to fix something that's not speaking. I see their point, but I also worry about what in the future she may develop a deep vein thrombosis. And I'm curious to ask your patient that you were just describing, if she's not having any symptoms, what made you suspect that in the first place? <laughs> I knew you would ask me that question. She actually had... She actually had pelvic vein congestion. And so she told me that anytime she stood up, she would feel this pain in her pelvis and it would hurt. And as soon as she lay down, it would feel better. So mm -hmm. I was looking for pelvic vein congestion, not May Turner. And that's when the May Turner syndrome showed up. So it was an incidental finding. So is that why you include May Turner as uh, with abdominal pain issues when the pain that they would feel is in the left leg? Well, the left leg vein is in the pelvis. Okay. So I, I, I mean, it's not part of the leg, it's not part of the abdomen, but it's part of the pelvis. Okay. So I, it's kind of a, it doesn't have a home. <laughs> Actually, I don't think the, I think this is such a great conversation because I feel like the pelvis is kind of the black box anyway. My husband, who's a urologist, I mean, he operates in the pelvis or he did before he retired, but you know, I feel like GYN doctors and urologists who operate in that area don't necessarily have a great understanding sometimes of all the complicated things that can happen in the pelvis. Mm -hmm super important information for a lot of people to have. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I don't blame them because this is such, there's so, there's so many players in this, in the pelvis itself mm -hmm. and the abdomen. And, and, you know, the whole concept of uh, that patients with EDS have loose joints, that's the common concept, <laughs> but they also don't, they also have to understand that tissue is loose. And when they stand up, it shifts. Mm -hmm. That's what the GI and the, and the pelvic pain people have to sort of, their mindset is not on that part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why having these conversations will start a conversation. Like people are going to start asking questions. Patients are going to start asking questions. And, you know, eventually it will be a much more understood, um, much more commonly diagnosed, I should say. Mm. Now, um, the other one is tethered cord syndrome. Mm -hmm. Strangely enough, tethered cord syndrome, we know causes bladder issues and um, leg pain and all that. But um, it, it can also cause in, um, stool incontinence. It can cause that. But besides that, it can cause abdominal pain. And we do not have a great explanation as to why. I mean, yes, the spinal cord is getting yanked because of tethered cord syndrome. And is there a nerve that's get, going to the abdomen that's also getting pulled? We don't know enough about tethered cord syndrome, but we have seen patients 
improve their GI system, their abdominal pain improve after tethered cord syndrome. Mm. Not everybody, but there are enough cases to say that 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 there is some link between tethered cord syndrome and abdominal pain. The last one is uh, is called acnes, anterior cutaneous nerve entrapment syndrome. This is not particular to EDS, but you do see it in a lot of cases. This is outside the abdomen. Remember the I told you about the the abdomen, the, all the organs being in a bag. Mm -hmm. This pain is from the bag itself. So in the front of our abdomen, we have the six pack muscle and the six pack muscle at the edge of the six pack muscle, there is a, there, there is, there is a nerve that comes out from the spine and it travels to the edge of the six pack muscle. And it's a tiny tunnel and it goes under the tunnel and into the muscle. What happens is that sometimes that tunnel for whatever reason narrows down and it presses on the nerve. Hence anterior, which is front, Cutaneous, which is the which is subcutaneous tissue, nerve entrapment syndrome. Mm -hmm. These patients often have a very specific pain on their abdomen. Uh, you can reproduce it by pressing on it. Um, what I do is I have them do a little sit up. That's when their uh, six pack gets tight, and then I press on that edge of the six pack, and they'll they like uh, complain of pain. We used to see this a lot in plumbers and HVAC people, people who do HVAC work. Because they stick their um, they stick their tools to their stomach because they have they want if they have to use both their hands they 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 put the put a pipe or a rod against their belly to push against it and eventually develop um, the syndrome acnes. We do see it sometimes in patients who've had um, abdominal surgery, especially pelvic surgery. We do see that the easiest diagnosis to make is that if they do they'll they'll say that my belly hurts when I try to sit up. I'm lying down and when they try to sit up, they feel this pain, it hurts. And that's often brings in a suspicion for acnes. The, to confirm the diagnosis, um, a doctor can inject a tiny bit of numbing medicine at that spot and it should relieve their pain. Mm. That's the easy part. The hard part is finding a surgeon and convincing him to go and release that uh, nerve. Mm. Generally it's done by general surgeons, uh, but if I have a hard time finding somebody to do that. But these are some of the solutions. So that, ladies, is in a nutshell. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, I forgot. There's more to it. Sorry. Go to listen to me a little bit more. So hernias <laughs> are common. Hiatal hernia, ventral hernia. These are usually not painful. And hiatal hernia can cause some amount of high. Uh, if it's a big one, then it can cause some issues. But ventral hernias are hernias that happen around the belly button or something like that. And they're, they're not painful. Um, the other one to watch out for, and that is always on the top of my head, is intestinal rupture, mm. an aneurysm rupture, especially in patients with vascular EDS. Now, <clears throat> this is a caution here. Just because somebody doesn't have vascular EDS doesn't mean that they're not prone to having intestinal rupture or an aneurysm rupture. We divide people with EDS into, into 13 subgroups, but it's not a clear subgroup uh, division. So a patient with hypermobile EDS can have an overlap with classical EDS symptoms, or a hypermobile patient can have some symptoms of vascular EDS. We're not so clearly divided. And so just because someone doesn't have vascular EDS and just has hypermobile EDS, we can't sit back and say, oh, this patient can't have an intestinal rupture because they don't have vascular EDS. It yeah. should always be on the top of their mind. 
the next one is absorption of medicines for some reason and i'm not quite sure i think it's more from the mast cell activation causing inflammation of the lining of the intestines that patients with eds do not absorb medicines and very often we'll write medicines and they'll come back and say doc that didn't help me at all i mean you can give them beta blockers and they'll say their heart rate did not change at all and you're left wondering what's going on and I would say a very high percentage of these patients do not absorb meds. And the test for that is very simple. You give the patient some Benadryl. We know that Benadryl makes you sleepy. And if they're not absorbing medicines, they're not absorbing their Benadryl and they may not feel as sleepy. And that kind of gives you an idea that they're not absorbing their meds well. Mm -hmm. Now, if somebody has that issue, let's say they're not absorbing meds, uh, there are other paths that you can do. You can take it by nose, inhale it, you can nebulize the medicine, for example, chromolin, you can nebulize it. Uh, you can put it under your tongue that bypasses the intestines in the stomach completely. Um, you can have the compounding pharmacy make a um, skin lotion or a skin patch. So the skin is a, it gets absorbed. It gets absorbed through the skin. So these are some of the other, and of course there's IV and IM injections. That's the other one. Um, so the reason I brought this up was because um, even though it's not abdominal pain, but it has a lot to do with mast cell affecting them uh, mm -hmm. or absorption of meds. And then there are food sensitivities that one has to watch out for bloating. And then they've got, they have to watch out for histamine releasing foods like tomatoes and peppers and things like that. Most patients with EDS know that by now. They know that anytime they eat bread, they feel awful. But I just wanted to kind of reinforce this. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So these are, in a nutshell, GI or abdominal issues in patients with EDS. I feel like when I was in medical school and, and taking embryology and thinking, wow, how does any baby ever come out like, you know, relatively healthy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> listening to this list and thinking of various different patients that I've had. And it's interesting what you were saying about the malabsorption. I had a patient who was on TPN and she said when she was in the process of going on to total parenteral nutrition or, you know, being fed through the blood vessels um, because her gut doesn't work. And she's, she's had a lot of these procedures that you've, that you've mentioned a lot of problems, but she said at one point she had to stop 17 different medications that she was taking and she noticed nothing different at all. Yes. And so she said, I don't think I was absorbing anything because I stopped all 17, all of a sudden, and a lot of them were medications that you were not supposed to stop all of a sudden. And obviously we don't want anyone to listen to this conversation right? and, and stop their medications, you know, <laughs> um, which, which is a perfect lead into my next question, which is, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this and going, oh my gosh, I have abdominal pain. I've gone to the doctor. I've complied with the instructions. They're not willing to look into deeper causes. Um, how do I begin to figure out what might be at the root cause of my pain with or without the help of someone on my medical team? And obviously you can't just go into a hospital and request to order some of these tests on your own. So you, for, for a lot of these things, you do need some support from your medical team. But what do you suggest that people do as um, some steps that maybe they could do if they have abdominal pain and they're trying to sort out what might be going on? Yes, I have a little hack for finding out What's going on? Okay, so um, <clears throat> let's. One of the commonest issues is uh, gastroparesis or movement of the intestines not being good. They don't move well, and you know, depending on the day, it varies from day to day. And they may go for that radioactive test, and that comes back normal. But then the next day, they still have bloating and all those issues. So you can do this at home: is to take beet. When you take beet, 
you should not and check your poop for the next two days and you should after two days you sh it should not be red in color anymore now if it is still red like six days later and your poop is still red that means your intestines or your stomach isn't moving well that's a little home hack to get your diagnosis a little more confirmed because we've had patients that have had an official um you know gi test with a radioactive egg and they've been told it's normal which some days it is normal. Mm -hmm. It all depends on the day you go. I've had right. one patient who went five times before they found out that it was gastroparesis. Mm -hmm. The hack is uh, you can take beet. Uh, somebody suggested taking corn. Uh, that's another way to do it. But I think color stands out better than looking for corn. But after 48 hours, you should not have any more beet in your uh, stool. That's a small okay. tiny hack you can look at. That, that's that's great. And I, I tell people that all the time that any test that you do is a snapshot in time. It's just showing you what's going on. And like you said, if, if it's supine or upright, you know, these things that are worse when you're upright aren't going to really show up with a supine test. So, um, so that's a great hack for people to, to try on their own. Mm -hmm. um, how much beet should they eat? Is there like a amount per <laughs> cups per kilo or anything like no, that? No, go to town, have as much as you like. Okay. Um, it doesn't matter. Oh, but okay. Approximately in 48 hours, it should be gone. I mean, okay. yeah, after 48 hours, if you see a little bit, it's okay. Mm -hmm. But if you're still having red colored poop six days later, yes, then you probably have uh, gastroparesis. Okay. That is a great hack. Any other, uh, I love that. People, <laughs> people are going to love that. People love getting little, you know, tidbits uh, like that. Well, the one other one I came across was um, corn. You, instead of chewing the corn, you just swallow the corn and you look for corn which is kind of a hard one to do because mm -hmm. you have to sift through your poop, which is not, yes, <laughs> which is not, not as fun. The sales um, of beets are going to, are going to skyrocket <laughs> for the week. after, And, and a lot of people are probably <laughs> corn sensitive too. I feel mm -hmm. like. Right, right, right. Um, the things to, one of the things is, uh, which is a huge problem and I don't have an answer is the food that we eat, uh, the manufactured food, try to stay away from manufactured food. Um, obviously, because the manufacturers are putting a lot of a lot of sub stuff in their chemicals that I can't even pronounce. And I'll just give you an example. I have a lot of these food, I have to eat what I eat I have to be very careful because, you know, like I am gluten sensitive, and I, you know, all of these things. But there will be every few days, I feel yucky and a little queasy. And maybe I ate something. But you know, if I go to Europe, and I was there about two weeks ago, I gave a talk on EDS actually in Germany. And I was, eat, they don't really believe in this stuff. They don't have mast cell activation syndrome. They don't, they're like, what? You guys are food sensitive? And they, they, didn't, they didn't really understand the concept of mast cell activation syndrome because they're not getting exposed to these chemicals. Yeah. And I could eat anything. I, I went to town on bread just to test it and nothing happened. I felt great. I felt fine. And again, as I came back, it was the same thing. So uh, eating processed foods is very dangerous. Uh, not, I shouldn't say dangerous, but it is a problem. Mm -hmm. The other thing is vegetables and fruits and all that. We may think that these are okay. I would suggest buying these vegetables and fruits from the farmer's market. And this goes back to a theory that uh, if you want to read about it, it's in the Walls Protocol. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Bluestein knows about that. Yeah, so, I love the Walls Protocol. Walls Protocol, where um, th th this is a neurologist. She treated her own MS, and 
um, like from a wheelchair to no wheelchair. And, and, and the only thing she did was uh, she changed her food, her diet. And what happened is the theory is that our bio microbiome, the, the guys who live in our intestines, the bacteria and all that, the microbiome is used to the local environment. So I'm in New England, my microbiome is used to the New England environment. But if I eat an orange that comes from Florida or I eat uh, a tomato that comes from Mexico, that is, that is growing in soil that is very different from the soil in New England. And for some reason, and I don't understand the whole theory behind it is, but for some reason, eating foods from faraway lands affects our microbiome significantly. And so Dr. Wall's uh, theory was to, okay, you gotta eat the foods that are locally grown, the chicken that's, that's going around and eating green or bugs that are free roaming in, in New England or in my area. And that's one of the things I can think of that you can try and change. Mm. Uh, even with the fruit, not even talking about the processed food, I'm talking about the natural foods like, you know, vegetables and fruits, uh, as far as possible, buy the local ones. Again, chickens and meats also locally because um, the chickens are going to eat bugs and, and stuff from the ground that's in your, in your area, in your environment. And that affects the microbiome significantly. And this study has been done. In fact, there was a really great study done where they looked at the microbiome in these um, in um, pygmies in in Africa, and they looked at their microbiome, and they they were able to figure out the difference why these people can survive so well, and that they are healthy on their local foods. But if you disrupt that microbiome, then they become unhealthy. Mm. And this is the reason why I would suggest is getting local foods. Obviously, we can grow it. Your next best option is to go to the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. that, that makes so much sense. And I feel like we have not had a single expert on to talk about any issues with uh, related to hypermobility that have not talked about your nutrition and your diet as one of those magic silver bullets that will help you. Um, and it's, so, it's something that we just take for granted. Yeah, yeah, I'm supposed to eat better. But what a concrete reason to look at that to say, Hey, not just eat healthier, like you said, fruits and vegetables, but fruits and vegetables from your local farmer, local farmers market. Very concrete reason for that, and I, I, I love that. That's reminding me to get back to the farmers market. So, <laughs> we have just like skimmed the surface of so many issues, but in doing so, we have done like a, a really deep dive into abdominal pain and actually uncovered a very few. Um, sort of common elements. So, you know, in one way, we can look at this big long list of issues and say, oh, too much acid, uh, pinched artery, um, a bacterial overgrowth or a pinched nerve. Or we can look at this big long list of issues and say, oh, mast cell problem, uh, nervous system sort of dysregulation, loose connective tissue. Like there are these few things that come up again and again, even though we have so many different di diagnoses in the other common column. And it's really helpful to look at it that way and see it that way as a recurring theme and to once again, remind ourselves to ask the question why, or as you said, um, what's broken, right? And try, right. To, try to come at it from there rather than what's the diagnosis, let's fix that. Let's fix what's broken that's causing the diagnosis. Um, I, I feel like I've just sat through a masterclass and I am going to be listening to my own podcast again several times just to have a chance to absorb everything in this. We are so grateful for you coming on to share your wealth of, of knowledge um, with us all. Is, is there, where can people find you? Is there a way for them to find you and find out more about you and what you do? Oh, you can, doctors can't hide anywhere. <laughs> you can't hide anywhere. Um, yes, um, I, well, I'm in Rhode Island, obviously. Um, and uh, my website is painri, pain Rhode Island. 
pinrai.com and pretty much everywhere. <laughs> one little more, one more hack that just came up um, on the nausea vomiting part. Mm. Um, any cold medicine is a very good anti-nausea medicine. That's a great hack because that's easy to find. In fact, before Zofran was invented, I'm that old, before Zofran was invented, um, we were giving patients Benadryl for nausea and vomiting. Mm. Visteril. Dr. Bluestone will remember that. Visteril, oh, yeah. we used to always give uh, we, a narcotic like morphine or uh, meperidine. You would add Visteril, which is an, which is an mm. antihistamine. So if, mm. you're, if you don't have Zofran handy or your doctor didn't give it to you or something like that, take a tablespoon of or a pill of Benadryl, and that's an anti-nausea medicine. Well, I think well, that's actually a great suggestion though, too, because I think a lot of people don't think Zofran can actually contribute to constipation, right? Yes. And headaches. Mm -hmm. so it, it has some side effects that I feel like a lot of people just prescribe it like it's nothing. And, and I have lots of patients who, I mean, they, they take it very, very regularly. And uh, so I, it's great to have other alternatives of things for people to try. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking when you said Benadryl for the nausea, the Benadryl may help address at least short-term some of the mast cell issues, yeah. which will help yes. the nausea. Yeah. in that way so it's also a great little diagnostic tool well i'll um, also give you another tip on that um, <laughs> benadryl not we're not just talking about benadryl we're talking about antihistamines benadryl mm -hmm. zyrtec claritin and all of those benadryl being the king mm -hmm. but hydroxyzine also all mm -hmm. of these have vagal stimulating effects mm. the only thing is that they're not very strong vagal stimulating effects but you want vagal stimulation because your sympathetic nervous system is so revved up that you want to have vagal stimulation. And so Benadryl or any of these besides the nausea can also help with some of the uh, movement of the intestines, um, make it much easier. Mm -hmm. That's that's really cool. Um, it, it all just kind of links back in on itself. It's so interesting. Um, well, you have been listening to the Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD podcast. I'm your co-host, Jennifer Milner, here with Dr. Linda Bluestein, the founder of Bendy Bodies. Dr. Chopra, we are so grateful for you coming on and chatting with us today and sharing your knowledge. I know that this podcast episode is going to really help a lot of people. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Happy to be here. Yay. We finally got to talk to you and we look forward to more conversations for sure. Mm -hmm. Hacks. Hacks. I love hacks. <laughs> yes. We, lo we love hacks too. We love and, hacks. Yeah. We're going to do a whole series on hacks now just because you started it. We're going to pin you down and we're going to yeah, take all your EDS hacks. hacks. Yeah. High probability <laughs> hacks. We need to have a... Uh, no, the reason, series. as you can see why, because when you first asked me, I said, you know, there's no way that you can cover everything in one shot. I mean, it's almost 4 p.m. And, you know, and we've, we've just, we haven't really gone into tons of details. We've just sort of skimmed through mm -hmm. things. Um, but I wanted to bring this up because um, there's no place where you find all of this in one place. There's no literature or nothing like that, that, that you can find this in one place. The hard part is gastroenterologists just like to do a scope from the top and from the bottom. And then they look inside the intestine, but they, all of that we talked today was all outside the intestine. There's so many problems just outside it and they don't want to touch that. And so this, this was the reason why I wanted to bring it up was because mm -hmm. patients to be aware of these things and they can then bring them up with their, with their doctors. Yeah, well, we absolutely. are grateful that you did. Yes, and, and yes. This, this is such an interesting way to look at it. So thank welcome. you again. You're welcome. Guys, take care, have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. You too. We really appreciate all the great information. And uh, we know a lot of people will find this really valuable. Thank you. 
If you found this helpful, follow the Bendy Bodies podcast to avoid missing future episodes. Please leave a review and share the podcast so more people know about Bendy Bodies and joint hypermobility. Screenshot this episode tagging us in your story so we can connect. Our website is www.bendybodies.org and follow us on Instagram at bendy underscore bodies. We love seeing your posts and stories, so please tag us using hashtag bendybuddy. This information is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The information shared is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please refer to your local qualified health practitioner for any medical concerns. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.